0: Welcome to Season 7 of Spark Science. We're here with you today to continue exploring stories of human curiosity. I'm your host, Regina Barber-DeGraff, I'm an astrophysicist that teaches physics and astronomy at Western Washington University. And I'm going to be honest with you, I am pleasantly surprised that we're still going strong and we're doing so because of students, staff, and faculty here at Western Washington University who help make these audio and video episodes for you all, our amazing listeners. For those of you who are longtime listeners, you can probably guess who our guest is today in our season premiere. She is a science communication powerhouse. She calls herself the Martian, but I call her the Steve Martin of Spark Science. Our guest on this episode is Dr. Melissa Rice. In this episode, we predict a perfect landing of perseverance and spoiler alert, we were actually right. We talk about the baby helicopter it's carrying And we also talk about the next three months of Dr. Rice's life, which is going to be controlled by something called Mars time. We hope you enjoy our interview with NASA scientist, Dr. Melissa Rice. This is the first interview of season seven, and we have back our platinum member, our number one VP, Dr. Melissa Rice. Welcome. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Again, again, it's the highlight of my year to come speak with you for Spark Science. I'm talking to you days before Perseverance's landing. Just real quick. I know you've been on the show a million times, but we can give our listeners just a real quick overview of like, what do you do when it relates to Mars and how did you get there?
1: Yeah. So for this mission specifically, I'm part of the team that designed and built and next week we'll start operating the cameras on the rover Actually, the rover has 23 different cameras, um, but I'm part of the science cameras. It's an instrument called MassCam-Z, the two cameras at the top of the rover's head. And these cameras are going to take pictures in beautiful color um, and also in many colors into the infrared, the near-infrared wavelengths that the human eye can't see. And we will use those Um, to do a technique called imaging spectroscopy that allows us to interpret what the rocks are made of. And so that technique, imaging spectroscopy, that's my specialty. And that's a technique that I've used on the previous Mars rover missions, curiosity and then spirit and opportunity before that. Um, And so it's through that kind of niche expertise working with these rover missions that I've developed that. I got in the lucky position to be part of this new MassCAM-Z team for Perseverance.
0: I mean, you're part of this big group that decides where it's gonna go too, right? There's like this big voting contest. (laughs) It
1: was kind of a contest and it wasn't like there was a group of people who got to decide. It was a totally public process. So anyone in the world theoretically, if they wanted to, could have shown up and made a pitch for their XYZ coordinates on Mars that they wanted to go to. And then um, everyone who showed up got to vote. And there was a series of these meetings and discussions. And each time they would whittle it down to fewer and fewer sites until at the very end, there were everything but three sites on Mars had been voted off the island. (laughs) <laughs> and ultimately NASA makes the final decision, but it's a community process to narrow everything down to just the uh, handful of sites that get decided between. So yeah, I, would, I brought uh, small armies of students to those meetings so that they could take part and vote and ask questions about the sites. And I was advocating for a site early in the process that made it into the top eight But then it got eliminated in the last round um, and didn't make it into that final three.
0: I, I love it when you talk about like your role in each Mars mission. And my favorite stories are the ones where you talk about once the rover actually lands and everything's successful, you go on these Mars shifts. Your life changes once the rover lands.
1: The reason why everything changes and why I am not accepting any meetings for three months after the rover lands is because I'm gonna be living on the Martian clock. And Mars is very Earth-like in a lot of ways. Um, Its day is close to 24 hours, but it's a little different, just different enough to end up being really annoying. So (laughs) its day (laughs) is 24 hours and about 40 minutes. So there's an extra 40 minutes to Mars's day. And that's just because Mars is rotating on its axis ever so slightly more slowly than the Earth is. So what that means is that we can operate the rover on a schedule that's very similar to an Earth day, but it's 40 minutes off from the Earth day. Right, and that adds up. And that adds up, yeah. So every day my starting Uh, time in my workday, my alarm clock is going to go off on average 40 minutes later than the day before. And as you march through the clock, 40 minutes at a time, day after day, after about one month, you cycled all the way around the clock, worked (laughs) through the night shift and then cycled back into a regular earth schedule. So basically it's going to be two weeks at a time that are kind of earth-like And then I shift out of that into two weeks that are a legitimate, painful night shift. Mm
0: -hmm. And it's
1: not that bad to work the night shift. A lot of people do it for most of their careers. But the real tricky thing about Mars time is that we never get to adjust to it. Mm -hmm. So it's like going onto the night shift and then immediately going back to the day shift and then switching back to the night shift and going back and forth like that for... Uh, the first three months of the mission.
0: I mean, it's it's like being on a trip where you're going from one time zone to the next every single day for two weeks. Right?
1: Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And so what do they say when you're jet lagged, um, you know, a if you're eight hour. hours, yeah. time difference, give yourself a day for every hour right. of the time difference to adjust to the jet lag. Well, we shift forward 40 minutes a day every single day. And so we're constantly in that game of catch up. Yeah. And one of the reasons why they stop this whole Mars time business after three months (laughs) is because people get so tired that they start making stupid decisions. Mm. Their brains are so tired that they're behaving as if they're legally drunk. And that is not what you want for a bunch of people operating a multi-billion dollar spacecraft on Mars. Yeah, that that and the other reason why they cut Mars time off um, is because after about 90 days, marriages start to break down. <laughs> really hard when you are working on a Mars schedule when your spouse and your kids are getting up and going to work, going to school, or you know, dialing into school, dialing into work right. in COVID times now. Um, and yeah, living, living on two different planets in one household, uh, can put a strain on your family.
0: (laughs) So I remember you telling me stories of, I mean, it's not just you who are on these night shifts or the, the Mars time. It's, it's a whole bunch of people. So you were telling me, um, when you lived in, in California, that there'd be people who were also on this shift and like, is there some camaraderie?
1: (laughs) Yeah. You know, for curiosity, um, the 400 scientists who work on the mission, they all descended on the jet propulsion laboratory right before landing right. and got short-term apartments around Los Angeles. And so there were all of these people living on this weird schedule, but kind of doing it together. And so we'd have after work barbecues at 5 a.m. in somebody's backyard. My birthday was a week into Mars time and we threw a birthday party at 7 a.m. at the end of the shift. <laughs> so having that community and being able to, you know, explore a place like L.A. that has a, a real 24-hour life mm-hmm. cycle yeah, um, was really neat the first time around. And that was, that was originally the plan for what we would do with Perseverance. Mm-hmm. But... With COVID, the entire team is going to remain remote. Mm -hmm. So I will be here in Bellingham, Washington, and I will be the only person in Bellingham living and working on this strange schedule. And that's going to be even harder than usual, not having a community of people who I can reliably go get lunch with at 3 a.m.
0: Right. Yeah, and there's really not a nightlife here in Bellingham. So... (laughs) This is Spark Science, and we're talking with Dr. Melissa Rice about why we, as humans, send robots to Mars. I I do appreciate, though, and again, I'm bringing it back to the community because I appreciate you wrote an op-ed for Seattle Times, and in it you talked about really justifying spending money on something like this during times that are so dire and so intense in our society right now. And I really liked your reasoning. You were saying that, I mean, one... This gives, like you said, 400 scientists are working on this, not only the scientists, but their students and, and helping educate their, their students. And there's a lot of good that's coming out of that. But also I, I I liked how you actually broke down the money. Do you talk about this in, uh, in your teams, the rover teams, you talk about like the benefits of your mission?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think everyone who works on the mission and receives government funding to be part of the mission um, (laughs) needs to reckon with that question of what is the benefit of this? Because I'm not just satisfying my own curiosity here and going to play Mars scientist uh, to satisfy my own itch. This is work that taxpayers are paying me to do for them. And so I think everyone has or, or should be thinking, really carefully about how is this work that I'm doing, working with a robot on Mars, how is that a service to the people who are paying for the mission? Mm -hmm. And I know that the MassCam-Z team that I'm part of uh, for the cameras is taking that really seriously. Uh, We've talked a lot about how to give the public uh, the best of what these cameras are doing as soon as the images hit the ground, they're going to be made available on a public website. Right. Um, we're going to curate a public website that's going to have all of the spectacular color image, panoramic images. We're going to be posting um, nearly live commentary on the images as they're received. So every day there'll be some outreach content, some from the scientists giving a quick take at what's in the images. And there's a, a real clear sense, um, at least uh, among the Cam z scientists that we're not doing this for us and our obscure specialties and curiosities, but <laughs> we're doing this for, for all of humanity, even beyond the US taxpayers that are paying for my involvement. Um, this is This is a record that we're creating for all of humanity about what we're learning about Mars. And hopefully, what that record is going to help people for centuries to come as we try and understand more
0: about the solar system and our place in it. And and I would, I would say giving hope to people during dire times is worth so much. I mean, I just keep on thinking of this idea of that money going to fund students as well. Like we're, we're giving students yeah. the opportunity to work on this, like groundbreaking science, this, this, you know, this, I I think awe-inspiring science and we're we're paying them to do it. They don't even have to pay to do it. And I just think that that's really cool.
1: The money that I get from NASA to support my involvement and my research group's involvement in the mission, most of that money goes to pay student stipends, their living stipends. It pays their tuition. It pays their fees um, and it allows them to study what they want to study, which is space science and geology, and not to have to worry about the financial pressures of going to school to do that. Right. Um, and so they don't have to make a choice between working in town to pay their rent while trying to study for school. They don't have to. They don't have to make those choices. And so it allows students to really focus, and then it sets them up really well mm-hmm. to go into a, a whole wide variety of industries.
0: We're talking with our favorite Martian, Dr. Melissa Rice, about the perfect landing for Mars Perseverance. Perseverance has landed. Walk us through your perfect day, your perfect landing, what that day is going to look like, what it has, what it looked like, let's say. <laughs> oh, Gina, it was the perfect day. Yeah. It was
1: unseasonably warm in Bellingham. Yep. yep. It was sunny and 50 degrees a pod of orcas right. jumping in the bay. Yep, yep. <laughs> Bald eagles swarming the trees, right. lap, tipping their wings to perseverance. Yeah. And <laughs> on this perfect day, even though I was so excited and nervous for the mission, I managed to sleep until 10 a.m. That's my goal, because on this perfect day, I knew that I had to work until about 4 a.m. that morning. Oh, so what a day. uh, It was perfect that I was able to sleep late to prepare for this and then to tune in to NASA's live coverage and commentary Mm. of the landing, which started at about
0: 11.15 a.m. I heard there was no glitches at all, like none.
1: No glitches at all. Not even with the um, the virtual commentary and the remote interviews and everyone's internet connections. And so the real excitement began seven <laughs> minutes before landing, which is called the seven minutes of terror. That got a lot of media coverage. <laughs> uh, that did. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> on the science team, we were all watching this from our living rooms distributed around the world, right, waiting for that first sign that touchdown was complete. Um, we wanted to hear Tango Delta nominal, touchdown nominal. That's kind of the code that we knew to listen for. And once we heard that the signal was received, that touchdown was nominal, then shortly thereafter, we got word that a first image had been downlinked from the rover. And that's what the scientists were really excited to see for the first
0: time. Because
1: you want to make sure that
0: everything's working once you land.
1: (laughs) Exactly. And we want to make sure that the uh, surface of Mars is in contact with the wheels. Mm -hmm. And we're going to, we saw that in the first image. <laughs> it's an image of the wheel in contact with the surface. Oh, and we see, wanna make not sure that smell. that wheel is uh, intact and not flattened from a harsh landing, that the surface, the horizon looks flat, that we're not tilted at some weird angle with one of the wheels up on a pointy rock. So there's a lot that we can tell from that first image. And as a geologist, uh, we all scrutinize that first image, for whatever we can learn about whatever little pebbles happen to be in that first patch of ground we take a picture of. yeah um, when curiosity landed, we were all in a room together in a basement um, conference room at JPL and somebody had a big projector with that first image and then all of the scientists just ran up to that screen projecting the image and we're, Um, trying to do um, quantitative analyses of the roundness of the pebbles and trying to do statistical analyses of the distribution of grain sizes that we could see in that image. And after that, I had a couple of hours to celebrate, a couple of hours to touch base with friends and team members all over the world. And then my workday started. Mm -hmm. So the rover lands, it is awake for um, just a couple of hours after it lands. And then it goes to sleep. It sends all its data to Earth and it goes to sleep. Sun sets on Mars. Mm -hmm. And when it's nighttime on Mars, that's when the scientists here on Earth wake up and start making the plan for what the rover is going to do in its next day when it wakes up. So, yeah, my first day working for Perseverance um, started, started at about 5 p.m. and went to um, about 3 or 4 a.m.
0: This is Spark Science, and we're talking to NASA scientist Dr. Rice about a helicopter flying on Mars. We can go back into the past for our listeners. We can go back into our current time while we're recording this, and I want to talk about what you, what we've already talked about in a previous episode. The why perseverance, like the the few things that are very new, and there are two things we talked about in a previous episode. It's going to drill into um, into the Mars, and we're actually going to be able to in the future collect those. Um, rock samples. And the other thing that you wrote in your op-ed was about there's going to be a helicopter now on Mars, which is crazy. There's this baby helicopter that's going to go around. It's very light. It's very small. And in your op-ed, you said it has to be extremely light because there's barely any atmosphere. And it took me a second to realize why that has to be. So can, for our listeners, can you explain why it has to be extremely light in a very thin atmosphere of Mars?
1: Yeah, so in order to get lift, which is what allows birds and airplanes on Earth to fly, um, you have to have wings, and those wings have to be uh, a certain size in order to get off the ground, and there has to be a certain um, ratio of your, your wing surface area to the total mass that you're trying to fly, and it, it's a very precise um, aeronautical science. And if you look at those equations for lift, one of the important variables is the atmospheric density. How many air molecules are there to provide a force against those wings? And on Mars, we have 100 times less air, less density in the Martian atmosphere than we do on Earth. So um, that means that we have to have much bigger wings and much less mass yeah. in order to get the same effects of flying. Yeah. So this little helicopter—it's um, about the size of a baseball or an apple, for a Washington State-centric analogy. Yeah. Imagine an apple with two big blades that are four feet across, so longer than yardsticks. Uh, those are the sizes of the helicopter blades. And so this um, little helicopter with its big wings, right now it's attached to the rover, but in the first month of the rover's mission, it's going to drop the helicopter onto the ground. It's just going to plop. It's just going to plop. <laughs> it's going yeah. to kind of give birth to the helicopter. Wow. <laughs> And then the rover has to drive away because mm-hmm. we don't want those wings, um, those blades to start spinning up and smack into the rover. Right. So we have to drive the rover away to a safe distance. <laughs> and then Perseverance is just going to sit um, and watch its baby fly. Wow. And the helicopter is going to fly at least five times in a period of 30 days. Mm -hmm. And Perseverance is going to stand by and it's going to take movies of the helicopter
0: in flight. That's going to be awesome. Any good parent taking movies of their baby over and over again. Exactly. Making its first steps.
1: (laughs) And then um, the helicopter has cameras as well. And so it's going to be using Perseverance as a relay Mm -hmm. to send those pictures that it takes back to earth. And we're going to get, Uh, glimpses of the whole landing area from that aerial point of view. And that's gonna be super helpful because we need need all the data we can get to plan for where Perseverance is going to drive next and what's gonna be the the big picture um, path for the mission.
0: I I remember the first time I met you and you were talking about why you study Mars. And this, this question is that like, I want to know if there was ever life On Mars, right? Like I want to know if there is life on Mars. Um, And and in your op-ed, you talk about how every single mission has kind of added a little bit extra to this idea of water being on Mars. With Perseverance, now it's going to be basically extracting rock from Mars, and we as humans are going to be able to see those physically, you know, grab those rocks, because a a future mission is going to go get them and bring them back to Earth. What are you as a Mars scientist, as a geophysicist, as somebody who really wants to know more about, you know, the life on Mars and what happened and what is happening? What would you like to see in those rocks? And what are you hoping that we'll find? I hope that
1: one of these rocks, that Perseverance selects to put in this uh, sample cache of rocks that are eventually gonna come back to Earth, I hope one of them contains an unambiguous biosignature. And a biosignature is just a fancy term for proof of life. What we really wanna get in order to say that, yes, this rock preserves the evidence of life it's not just one, but multiple types of biosignatures. Okay. And that's really what we need to have a definitive biosignature detection. And we would want to have multiple laboratories with multiple instruments on earth, verify that those multiple biosignatures are present. And so it's a really high bar to imagine the point where we say, yes, absolutely, that rock preserves evidence of ancient life on Mars. A biosignature can come in many forms because Mars only had a small period of time in its past when we think it had the conditions that would have allowed life to arise and evolve. We think that if there was life on Mars, it would be primitive compared to the way that life has flourished on Earth. And if we wanted to see any direct evidence of fossils in the rocks, they would be teeny tiny um, little microfossils, mm. Or maybe they would be um, something about the rock
0: itself that tells us that that rock formed in the presence of life. We're getting towards the end of our interview here. And I wanna ask the, the, the last question I ask you every single time uh, about pop culture. so in the future, what do you, in your opinion is like, should be the next like Mars kind of film or book or TV show, or what are you watching now that makes you think of that? How Mars is going to be portrayed in media in the future?
1: Yeah, well, I'll express a hope um, that sci-fi shows and movies about Mars and about space exploration in general Kind of move away from this dark, mopey, very (laughs) serious, taking itself so seriously kind of a tone and can start just being fun again. Right. I'm always struck in these shows about um, astronauts going to Mars or exploring new parts of the solar system that they're always so dour and serious the whole time. They're always um, so depressed almost to be doing this work on another planet. Yeah, like I block- really just want. <laughs> yeah, I want some sci fi astronaut to be excited that they're getting to go to Mars, that they're seeing the surface of a planet through their own eyes for the first time. Yeah. And I am hard pressed to think of a sci fi show um, with space exploration that's come out in the past know, five, 10 years yeah, decade. that really has that kind of sense of
0: wonder and excitement. I absolutely agree, I'm thinking of two series like Picard and Expanse and they're both very dark. They're very, very dark. But then it makes me think when you said the excitement, I think of Galaxy Quest and I just think of like this (laughs) movie movie where there's, you know, this child in the movie just excited to be even, you know, associated with any sort of space thing, you know, and-
1: Right, right.
0: Yeah. And it didn't take itself that seriously. And at the same
1: time, it was kind of a love letter to that geek culture and yeah. making fun of it at the same time. And that's what I'd like to see more of.
0: Yeah, I I absolutely agree. There should be Galaxy Quest, like some sort of reboot of that. I agree, I agree. I'd like to thank my friend and colleague, Dr. Melissa Rice, for taking the time right before the intense Mars landing to talk to us. If you'd like to learn more about the Perseverance rover and Mars, check out mars.nasa.gov. Spark Science is produced in collaboration with KMRE and Western Washington University. Today's episode was recorded in Bellingham, Washington, in my house, on my computer, during the great pandemic that's still going on in March 2021. Our producers are Suzanne Blaise and myself, Regina Barber DeGraff. Our audio engineer for today's episode is Zarek Coakley. If you missed any of the show, go to our website, sparksciencenow.com. If there's a science idea you're curious about, send us a message on Twitter or Facebook at Spark Science Now. Thank you for listening to Spark Science.